This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Residents around Young and Eglinton continue to be fed up with what seems like never-ending construction in their neighborhood. On Monday, more than 250 people turned out to a community meeting where residents called the congestion and traffic they face daily inhuman. They're pleading for a traffic light at Young and Erskine, the intersection where two months ago Evangeline LaRosa was killed by a cement truck driver. Midtown residents want more enforcement, and they're calling for heavy trucks to have specific safety mechanisms, like side guards to prevent people from being sucked under rear wheels, and cameras and sensor systems which eliminate blind spots. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss this important Toronto issue, City Councillors Josh Matlow and Mike Cole, along with John Taranu, a Safer Streets advocate and neighbourhood resident, and Andy Gort, President of South Eglinton Ratepayers and Residents Association. It's a frustrating, slow pace of change that we've seen in anything that involves uh, pedestrian fatalities, traffic safety. Uh, we're we're far behind the game already in Toronto when it comes to building safer streets. And whenever something does happen, the reaction seems like it's in slow motion. Uh, there have been some positive things that have come out recently. Uh, the three councillors obviously organized a very well-attended town hall. Uh, they have passed motions at council requesting studies, um, and they have spoken out uh, extensively in the media about the importance of doing something and uh, taking action uh, to improve safety on our streets. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is, again, the, the pace of change of actually implementing things is frustratingly slow. Uh, we're great at doing studies. We're not as great at actually building things. Yeah, we've we've seen um, uh, at least crossing guards now at many locations uh, where there haven't been uh, lights uh, there. But the pace of construction is is just uh, relentless. Uh, we've had uh, since 2016, we're looking at 21 more than 21,000 new housing units being constructed, and uh, not that many have been completed yet. Maybe 25 percent. Um, so we are already very busy and we're just very nervous how much busier it is going to get and how long this construction is going to last. Uh, that would equate to about 35,000 new residents within one and a quarter kilometer radius of Young and Eglinton. And uh, the recent uh, uh, regulations that the province has come out with uh, planning regulations uh, called OP, uh, uh, OPA 405 and Bill 108 uh, have raised heights and permitted developers even yet more uh, development, more sites and heights. Uh, and we're afraid that we're going to get yet another wave of construction coming after this and that it will last well into the 2020s uh, so that we're looking at a very long period of time of, of construction. And then just very high density once all the construction is gone with um, transportation infrastructure that that we, we, we're afraid is not up to par to handle the population that will be here. 
I'd like to bring in Councillor Mike Cole. Why is it taking so long? Well, actually, Libby, uh, just the opposite. Uh, we, we record-breaking speed. We put in this construction management uh, hub team right at Young and Eglinton that uh, goes in place December 1st. Uh, the mayor pushed it through, councillors, uh, Matlow, myself, Robinson. We, we've got this up and going where we're going to have a coordinated effort between the police. They, we got all the contractors in the same room. Uh, we, we've got the cement truck delivery have, people. Have we, we, so they're all in there on the ground now. Uh, so has has this happened yet, or you're saying in December, which I guess is next no, week? No, yeah, it's next week. Basically, it's uh, the team's been in place. Uh, Stuart McGee is now the head uh, coordinator, coordinating all this. It's never been done before in the city, uh, and it's now basically in place, uh, and they're uh, meeting and organizing uh, with the official, uh, you might say, uh, kickoff, but it's already in place right now. Now I'd like to bring in Councillor Josh Matlow. What do you think of the pace of things happening there? When you talk about the pace, uh, the, the, the pace of growth is outpacing uh, people's basic quality of life. And I'll give you just one example. Um, you'll, if you look at uh, many of the new development uh, uh, proposals in the area, you will see a sign that the Toronto District School Board puts up that tells people that if you move here to Young and Eglinton, you may not, your kid may not be able to go to the local public school because they're overcrowded. They already had to take the sixth grade classes out of each of the elementary schools in the area, move them into the middle school because there was no space. Now they're having to figure out how to enlarge that middle school because there's so much demand. And, you know, and there are also significant concerns around water capacity and some very basic things. So what we've been saying is, it's not about like, are you, do you like development or do you hate development? It's about, you know, however many people live in any neighborhood, their quality of life should keep pace with the growth. We want to pause on the development pressure to make sure that these basic quality of life priorities can finally, never mind keep pace, but even catch up with the growth that the province has allowed for so many years. City Councillors Josh Matlow and Mike Cole, along with John Taranu, a Safer Streets advocate and neighborhood resident, and Andy Gort, president of South Eglinton Ratepayers and Residents Association. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Quebec now has the toughest legislation for drinking and driving penalties in the country and North America. As of this past Monday, Quebec motorists found guilty of a second offense of impaired driving by law have to drive vehicles containing an alcohol ignition interlock device. The device, a breathalyzer, which in Quebec costs between $1,000 and $1,500, requires motorists to blow into it to check for a blood alcohol level before the car can start. Is this a law we should implement in Ontario and right across the country? While filling in for Libby's Nimer, I was joined by criminal defense lawyer Sarah Lehman and Marie-Claude Moran of Mothers Against Drunk Driving in Quebec to discuss. To us, it is important because we need to control impaired drivers, especially people who have an issue making a difference between drinking and driving. And right now, as it stands from a technological standpoint, the interlock is the only tool we have to do so. So to implement this and and impose an interlock on repeat offenders, 
to us is a good measure, and we hope it helps people along the line. Um, is there ev- any evidence, scientific evidence, that it would discourage a potential third offender against drinking and driving? Well, I'm sure that SAC did its, its, its research on this. I don't, I don't have data to provide okay. to you. But it is evident to us that if you can't start your car if you're intoxicated, evidently you won't drive. Um, it is, Quebec has probably what is the best interlock program in Canada, maybe the world, we're not quite sure, but definitely in Canada. A lot of drivers are using the interlock. It used to be something that was imposed. Now they're allowed to make a request to have one if they so desire because they have an issue with alcohol and driving. And since the uh, arrival of a new supplier for the uh, machine, the equipment, it's been a little more affordable for drivers. And uh, so far, so good. It's working for the people who are on the program. And it's it has been SAC's approach all along to target people with high BACs or repeat offenders. Uh, you may know, you may be aware that we do not have a program to target drivers who are over 05 in Quebec. This has never been uh, implemented because SAC and the government has, have decided that they would target people with high BACs. For example, if you are you know, twice over the limit and you're arrested, you are considered a repeat offender. So this is their approach. This is where they've headed with these measures. And um, as I said, we consider the interlock right now to do, to be the best tool available. Sarah Lehman, criminal defense lawyer, uh, calling us from Vancouver and specializing in impaired driving cases. Your view on what Quebec is doing to discourage drinking and driving, Sarah? I'm not certain that uh, asking drivers to install a interlock for life after a second offense is the appropriate measure here. I think it's an interesting take. Uh, I'm, you know, curious as to a number of different factors here. I would like to know who would be responsible for the installation and maintenance of that device, mm-hmm. uh, because this can be cost prohibitive to people who are on fixed income or people who are more marginalized. And unfortunately, those are often the individuals who struggle with substance abuse issues, including alcoholism. I would also like to know if there's going to be any other rehabilitative measures taken towards individuals who are repeat offenders, whether or not there's any education programs or anything else that can be done in order to actually treat the underlying alcoholism Mm -hmm. and the problem behavior So these are all big questions for me. I'd also like to point out that people who own motor vehicles do not use them exclusively. So there are families out there who rely on just one vehicle in order to meet every family member's needs. And is this going to be something that's going to affect people who have never been convicted of any criminal offense or engaged in any criminal activity? It's great to have such great public discourse on this issue. It's very important for us to continue to further our community education around issues of impaired driving. And of course, I would encourage everybody to um, consider this and talk about it with their family members. I'm just not sure this is the right approach, but I think we'll get it right someday. Okay, and Marie-Claude? Well, as I said earlier, we think it's a good it's good news for us, um, especially now as we enter into the holiday season where people will be 
drinking, mm-hmm. will be taking drugs. I want to remind everybody that you need to plan ahead and not ever drive if you've been drinking or consuming drugs. Marie-Claude Moran of MAD Canada and criminal defense lawyer Sarah Lehman. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. It was a tough week for federal conservative leader Andrew Scheer. Two campaigns have been launched to galvanize grassroots support against Scheer in hopes he loses a leadership review in the spring or of forcing him to step aside sooner. Scheer also unveiled his shadow cabinet this past Thursday. And despite the fact he has many prominent and long-standing conservatives in his caucus, he chose Leona Alislev as his deputy leader. She is a conservative newbie after crossing the floor from the Liberals. Joining Libby on Thursday to discuss Andrew Scheer's challenges in staying on as leader, John Barlow, Conservative MP for the riding of Foothills, Alberta, Ashton Arsenault, consultant at Crestview Strategies, and John McEtitian, Conservative activist, political consultant, and president of Bradgate Research Group. I'm surprised that Andrew would actually want to reference history because history doesn't serve him well in that the only time uh, there's been dissension in the party around the leadership and, uh, you know, uh, talk about getting rid of the leader is when in the past leaders haven't been up to the job and have had to be forced out or uh, made really apparent that uh, they weren't up to the job. So that's a that's a weird thing on Andrew's part. And the second part is, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of reflecting back um, when we've had uh, reviews of leader provincially, federally in Ontario, and I can't remember ever this early. Like, we're talking about a vote that's not happening until April, and the amount of people that have come out publicly and called for sure to move on, I think is unprecedented. I don't think we've ever had this many people, and, and, if, and if we have, it's been from one wing of the party or the other, whereas in this instance, you're really talking about widespread dissatisfaction with Sheer. Uh, the people who supported him for leader uh, are the most vocal, the uh, vocal that he should leave, and those who weren't with him are fairly vocal. So it's pretty widespread, and if anything, there seems to be unity for replacing Sheer. The minority opinion appears to be with Sheer, and he may actually, in my opinion, I, I've actually come to the uh, conclusion in the last week that he may be the first leader, if he stays until April, to lose outright. Ashton Arsenault, would you agree with that? And is part of his problem that he didn't do enough to satisfy his socially conservative base and, and the people who are socially liberal uh, think he's unelectable? Yeah, I certainly agree with certain elements of what John said. Look, I think there's no question that the walls are closing in a little bit. Um, but I'll say this. Fortunately for Sheer, uh, I think it's a bit premature to describe all of this as fatal. Um, I'd be shocked if he didn't at least make it to April. Um, obviously, the big fight comes then. Uh, look, there's no question that there's considerable criticism being directed his way currently. And I think most concerningly from uh, Andrew Shear's perspective is that the criticism, as John mentioned, is coming from multiple wings of the party. Uh, we've seen some pushback from Quebec candidates. We've seen some pushback from the social wing of the party. And we've seen some pushback from the more progressive elements of the party as well. 
Um, in order for Andrew Shearer to survive, he's going to need to work a ton with his caucus in the coming weeks and months. If his own caucus starts to question his leadership, his days are numbered in a bad, bad way. And that's just not something we've seen just yet uh, outside of one or two one-offs. Um, above all costs, he's going to have to make sure that they stay on side because they're the ones that are going to be inter- instrumental in lining up delegates to support his leadership in April. I think he also needs to find some time for some introspection. Uh, look, um, he needs to ask himself, what can I do differently? How did I fail personally? And who can I surround myself with to help right this ship? Now, presumably for the other side of the coin, I'm going to bring in MP. John Barlow from Foothills in Alberta. Our strategists who are just on the line saying they, they've never seen so much dissent and such a push to oust the leader so early on. Well, then I would say they don't remember 2004 very well. Uh, I, I recall certainly after uh, Prime Minister Harper lost that first election, um, it was very similar. Uh, lots of calls uh, that his career was over. He wasn't the right person. Um, you know, this this happened then. And what happened 18 months after that? Uh, Mr. Harper form, formed government and was the prime minister for almost a decade. Uh, we certainly have to take uh, some lessons from, as I said, from this election. I think all of us uh, took a few days or even a couple of weeks to uh, you know we're frustrated and and uh, you know kind of questioning what went wrong uh, but we've gone through that uh, we we've initiated uh, uh, with uh, our friend John Baird is, is um, going to be doing a complete analysis of our campaign uh, learn from those things um, but like I said we, we have to start moving forward and, and stay united as a team I think we have seen in the past when conservatives are fractured we lose uh, we have to stay united and focused on a common adversary, and and uh, now we have to refocus. And our our focus now, starting December fifth, when the House is back in, is uh, is doing all we can to reunite this country. Uh, I think that is a top priority. Um, but we also have to stay united as a party. Conservative MP John Barlow, Ashton Arsenault, consultant at Crestview Strategies, and John McEtitian, conservative activist, political consultant, and president of Bradgate Research Group. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As always, it was an informative visit when expert financial and estate planner Mark Halpern dropped by Fight Back this past Wednesday. While sitting in for Libby, I asked him about the importance of philanthropy, especially at this time of year. Well, besides the rain in Toronto, hopefully we're going to see some snow soon. And it's going to be that time of year where we're all gathering together with our families. And we just have this tremendous feeling of appreciation, hopefully, right? That you've got family, you've got health, we live in a great country, and uh, we have a lot more than we need. So if there's a way to incorporate or adopt charities into your family, which really are more like adopting as opposed to giving up money, you know, it's a great way to uh, to create some wonderful legacies that go beyond you. And, and can really help a lot of people in our city who really are struggling. While you're alive and well and working, Canadians should be thinking about giving how much, or as a rule, what's a good idea uh, for charitable contributions versus how it positively affects your taxes? Well, I can tell you they did a survey of all the uh, tax returns in Canada, and I think the average donation size for Canadians was around $240. So again, there's no rule 
school. Uh, certainly, you know, if you come from religious circles, uh, you know, we learn about tithing. You know, in, in our religion, Jewish, you know, we have uh, we give something called tzedakah, which is really more like righteousness or justice. And it's 10 percent that you're supposed to give away. And then, you know, is that's sort of the rule of thumb. Um, but it's certainly to incorporate something into your giving only is going to come back to you in multifold. And it would make most sense, I guess, to to make your charitable contributions throughout the year rather yeah. than in one sum. Well, actually, sum. right right now is yeah. the perfect time to be talking about this because uh, if most Canadians give gifts of cash or checks or credit cards, and I would suggest that that's probably the most inefficient way to give money to charity. Since 1995, the government's in- introduced 25 different pieces of legislation for Canadians to give money to charity. And one way, which most people are not aware, of is if you've had any money in the markets, let's say you have a mutual fund, uh, you know, an ETF or some stock, and it's appreciated over the last 10, 20 years, when you sell that, you pay 27% capital gains tax. But the government says that if you donate those shares or that stock to a charity, you don't pay that 27% capital gains tax and you get a full charitable receipt for the donation. Ah. So right now, Jane, while people are thinking about their taxes that are going to be due in April of 2020, let's say somebody owns 20, they're going to owe $25,000 of tax. Wouldn't it make more sense to donate $50,000 of low cost shares of a company today? Don't pay the capital gains tax and now have a charitable receipt to offset 75% of those taxes that are going to be due next year. But the time you have to do that is before December 31st. So you can do it now or you can set it up later on and just think about doing it for 2020. So the charity gets a benefit and you get a benefit. Yeah, you save taxes and you save taxes on the the sale of those securities, which you would have paid 27% on. Plus, you're getting a charitable receipt is now saving you taxes. So really what happens, Jane, is you're converting taxes into charity. And you don't have to distribute it right away either. You could set it up in something called a donor advised fund. There are different foundations like the Toronto Foundation, the Jewish Foundation, the Oakville Foundation. They'll actually allow you to set up your own almost private foundation through something called a donor advised fund. So you just put the money in there. It's a parking lot and you use that as the place to distribute your money next year for all your charities. You may have a question about doing your will. And as much as, Mark, we speak to those who are 45 plus, surprisingly, not that many people actually have an active, up-to-date will. Right. As a matter of fact, there was a survey that came out uh, of the 540,000 Canadians who have a net worth of $1.5 million or more. Only 40% of those people had a will. And of those 40%, 80% of them were not up to date. So I've actually met people who are worth $100 million who don't have a will. And by not having a will, that's a terrible thing because what happened is you must really love somebody at CRA so much to not have a will that you want to leave them a big chunk of your money. So a will is really the most important part of any estate plan. And then followed by that, you need to have a couple of powers of attorney as well. Powers of attorney allow somebody to make decisions on either your personal health care or your finances. And then how about just having a list of where everything is? You know, people, they might have a drawer, you know, where they sort of keep everything and there'd be an emotional event. And then like, where is everything? And people have to do forensics to find bank accounts and digital passwords and life insurance policies or where's the will. So it's really important that you communicate this to your family. Financial and estate planner, Mark Halpern of wealthinsurance.com. I'm Jane Brown. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of 
the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. After going through the audio, here are some of the best calls of the week. Simon in Toronto phoned to give his opinion of Conservative leader Andrew Scheer. I just find Scheer, he may have learned a lot uh, during the last election, but I still think he hasn't learned everything. To me, he sounds like a very hostile leader. He, he appears or almost comes across as a stubborn uh, leader. I don't know. I find it rather rather a turnoff coming from a leader. You don't see that from the NDP, and you certainly don't see it from the prime minister. He, he is a liability to the party right now. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ellen in Toronto, who also phoned with her thoughts on penalties for drinking and driving. No second chances. Um, let's utilize zero tolerance the way we do with under 21. You, you know, you make a mistake once, you know, that's fine. You make a mistake twice license is taken away. I think it's absurd that we're spending all this time and money on trying to help and modify people that are offending. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Make sure to join me again next week for a roundup of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.